it's really fantastic to see so many faces here today. I have to admit that leading up to the event, uh, my colleague Fiona Cameron and I, we did have a couple of scary thoughts and thought that we may be talking to an empty room and have to eat some bagels on our own. Um, fortunately, that is not the case, so thank you for saving us from that ugly scenario. <laughs> um, I really genuinely want to thank everyone for making the choice to be here this morning. Uh, I know it's not easy um, escaping your commitments, be they work or other, but your decision to be here today tells me that we share a common value around the importance of clinical trials and medical research. Um, today is all about raising valuable awareness about clinical trials, but with an important emphasis and focus on the role of the patient. So you being here also tells me that you really value that, which is fantastic. And to the patients and uh, trial volunteers that have joined us today, I say thank you. And if you're not fully aware of the significance that your participation has on the future of healthcare, then my hope is that you leave today feeling a whole lot more special and enlightened than when you arrive today. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my background's in nursing. Um, I've worked in healthcare for around 25 years. Um, uh, predominantly in clinical trials research. I've held many different roles. I've been a trial nurse coordinator. I also managed the Dermatology Clinical Trial Unit at the Skin and Cancer Foundation for a few years, and I still work there at the moment, although Professor Foley, my boss, doesn't think so. Um, <laughs> um, I'm primarily involved in establish the establishment of the Dermatology Clinical Trials Network. Um, I also am the Business Development Manager for Clean Trial Refer, which is a mobile app and website platform that helps connect patients and doctors to current clinical trials. And my third hat, of course, is I'm the co-founder and director of the White Coats Foundation. So, oops. So what is White Coats Foundation? Well, basically, the White Coats Foundation um, is a not-for-profit that's dedicated to supporting the discovery of better health for awareness. We came into existence last year because we recognised there was a need to raise awareness about the role of clinical trials out in the community. Generally speaking, I think the public is very aware and familiar with donating money to medical research and the importance and the value of that. And everyone's always keen to learn about um, new discoveries and medical breakthroughs, understandably. But how do we go from lab bench to bedside? How do we translate those discoveries and potential new treatments into actual treatments that people can benefit from? Well, it's the story in the middle that's missing, and that's clinical trials. And um, clinical trials provide the evidence base for healthcare practice, but they require the generous participation of patients and healthy volunteers. So we're here to shed light on that story. We want to share that story. We want to humanise the drug development process. Um, we want to highlight the fact that it's real people participating in clinical trials that are a key reason that new and improved therapeutic interventions are available to all of us to potentially benefit from. We also want people to know that they can access medications in their development phase through clinical trials and that they can be potentially life-changing and even life-saving. What we're not here to do is encourage or coerce people to participate in clinical trials. That is a very personal decision. But we do want to empower people with knowledge and ensure that they have access to choice, particularly in circumstances where those choices are limited or there are none. So how do we plan to achieve all of this? Well, we've got lots of different awareness initiatives in the pipeline and bright ideas. And some of you may remember when we um, launched last year, we released this thank you video. And in that video, we asked a really important question that I'm going to ask you here today, uh, that I ask everyone actually when I speak, and that is, how many people here have ever taken a prescription medication? Just put your hand up and keep it up. We're not going to know if it's a painkiller, antibiotic, or Viagra. You will not reveal yourself. <laughs> Although people might be wondering now. But anyway, <laughs> I think we're safe to say that that's pretty much everyone in the room. And it's a, it's a great question to start a conversation about clinical trials because it has relevance to just about everyone. Um, and relevance is really key to engaging and building an audience. But today we're here to launch the Keep Cup campaign, which is all about this Keep Cup, go figure. And the Keep Cup comes branded with the hashtag, I wear a white coat. Now, um, and that aligns with our mantra that you don't have to be a scientist um, to help medical research. 
anyone can wear a white coat. Now, that statement is not intended to devalue our scientists or anyone. It's just simply saying that we all have a role to play and that we need each other to facilitate these discoveries. So our plan is that sponsors will purchase these cups or grant us funds that will enable, them to, to enable us to distribute them to patients already randomised in clinical trials. And the cups will come with a thank you note, acknowledging that person's participation and recognising the gift and the contribution that they're making um, to scientific progress in the future of health. But the cup also becomes an awareness tool in the community. We expect that the hashtag will spark people's interest and curiosity to ask questions about what is I wear a white coat. And that allows patients to share their story about clinical trials and their knowledge and their experience and so raise awareness. And when there's a personal connection between the storyteller and the listener, um, that exchange of information is likely to be more meaningful and impacting because there's genuine interest from the person asking the question. So in addition to um, the cup being a, you know, an acknowledgement and a token of appreciation, it's also empowering patients to lead an awareness movement and, and share their knowledge and experience out in the community. But today we have gifted everyone with a keep cup. Yay. And, um, and that's because we believe that anybody um, who is committed to communicating the value and the importance of clinical trials that is working in the industry or that is donating money to support new discoveries also wears a white coat because those actions um, contribute to facilitating outcomes that have the potential to benefit any one of us. So I really hope that you enjoy your keep cups and that after the day you'll continue to share the important message that it comes with. We will be keeping a tally on our website of the number of cups that we donate because we see that one cup is a measure of one more person being reached and acknowledged that deserves to be, but also one cup equals one more conversation out in the community that's helping raise awareness about clinical trials. And the cups are not a single-use item. You know, they can be repeatedly used to tell a story. There's a couple people I'd like to thank in the room today, and that is um, Kerry Greenfield from GSK and Helen Arnetti from Roche. Uh, when I talked to Kerry and Helen about the Keep Cup campaign, they were very quick to recognise the value um, and the importance of this initiative. And I think what really resonated for them with this whole concept was that um, it really that they love the idea of being able to thank patients. And I think as sponsors, you know, their their avenues to interact with patients are very limited. And this provided, provided them with an avenue to be able to do that as well um, and, and acknowledge and thank patients for, for what they do in the discovery of new therapeutic interventions. So I call them our early visionaries. Thank you for your foresight and for coming on board to support our vision and our mission. Um, <laughs> um, if you'd like to be like Carrie or Helen, <laughs> you can. <laughs> We want more Carries and Helens. Please feel free to come and talk to us. Um, you know, we're an organisation that's here to stay. Um, we're creating a platform for ongoing awareness. So um, we'd be very happy to talk to anyone that wants to support our vision and our mission in any way. And I would also like to thank our many partners, St Vincent's Hospital, um, for providing us with the space here today to have the launch. So thank you to St Vincent's. I would also really like to thank all of the speakers and panellists that are here today who have given up their valuable time um, to participate in this initiative. We're very grateful and you will meet each of them as we go through the morning. Um, so I know that Megan Robertson is very keen to say a few words and uh, welcome you all here today. So I'll now pass over to Dr Megan Robertson, um, who's the Director of Research at St Vincent's Hospital. Thank you. Thank you very much and welcome everyone. Welcome to St Vincent's Hospital. We are thrilled to be part of the White Coats Foundation and to be hosting the launch of the Keep Cup program today. Before I progress any further, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging. We see the White Coats Foundation as being so well aligned with what we do at St Vincent's and our, our mission 
and our aim to improve healthcare, that it's just a wonderful, wonderful organisation. So St Vincent's Healthcare is really well-renowned for our excellence in clinical care, and we've actually been... Uh, St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne has actually been uh, named as one of the 100 best hospitals in the world this year. So we're really pleased about Interestingly, it's not something you apply for. It simply came in the mail. <laughs> no, seriously, but they, it's, a, it's an international um, organisation that ranks hospitals, and we have been ranked in the top 100 in the world. And that relates to our clinical care. Underpinning the excellence of that clinical care is research. Research across a very broad area, part of it being clinical trials for drugs, medical devices, new approaches to treatment, new approaches to care pathways, looking for ways we can better support and provide for our patients and our community. So sometimes I look at research and I think, oh, do we ever get a positive trial? Do we ever get something coming through? I think it's important when you're looking at clinical trials and research to look at the advances over the, a longer period. If I go back to my a personal story here, my first interaction with the health uh, industry, if you like, I don't come from a medical family, was when my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was in early secondary school. And if I look at the treatment protocols that she went through then, compared to what is available and the support and the protocols that happen now, it is just a world apart. We really have gone towards patient-centred care, towards thinking about the impact of our treatments and how well we can treat patients and have them as part of the journey, as well as you know, advancements in surgery and medication and chemotherapy and so forth. But all of those changes in care, that changing paradigm, has all been underpinned by research, and that research is underpinned not only by clinicians, but by participants and people who agree to be part of the process, part of that aiming to make care better. As an intensive care physician, when I go and ask people for consent to be part of a trial, one of the most common things I hear is, I know this may not make any difference to my relative, but if this can help someone else in the future who may be going through this, then I'll want to be part of it. So I'd like to congratulate the White Coats Foundation for what they're doing. I'd like to congratulate all of you for being here and being you know, involved in this journey. We really need to get the story out to the community that research is a core part of what we need to do to make the whole system better and continue improving. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is with great pleasure that I um, get to introduce you to our next speaker, Michelle Gallagher, who, in addition to being a very accomplished person professionally, is just an awesome human being, period. Um, and we're very fortunate to be able to call her our ambassador, who by a read like a novel, that's why I need notes. Um, but I do want to give you some background on Michelle. Um, she's an entrepreneur, an allied health clinician, advocate and leader in the Australian life sciences and health sector for over 25 years. Uh, Michelle established the Social Science, a digital communication technology and content agency focused on the science, health, engineering and technology sector. You don't want to say that too fast. <laughs> she successfully sold the Social Science a US -based company, um, to a US-based company, ShareRoot, last year, who are a marketing technology developer. And not even 10 months post-acquisition, Michelle is now promoted to the CEO role. Um, she's a champion of the Victorian biotechnology industry in advocating for women in STEM. Um, she was awarded the, the Victorian Telstra Businesswoman of the Year in 2017 and Victorian Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017. Um, she was inducted to the Victorian Honour Roll for Women last year. And I believe you're almost near completion of a, um, a global executive MBA. Is that right? Fantastic. Just slide that into all the other too <laughs> sure. Um, and she's also been a healthy volunteer for a year-long Ebola vaccine trial. And she's a vocal advocate for the value of clinical trials in our healthcare system. 
Um, she's a leader, she's an influencer, she's a collaborator, she's a mentor, and very importantly, she wears a white coat. So, welcome, Michelle. What a wonderful honour to be here today. I want to tell you a bit of a story. So, it was about 2015, and on the front page of The Age, there were stories about politics and stories about football and stories about our community. And then buried on about page 12, there was a story about Ebola. And it was in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And a friend of mine works on a mining site in the DRC. And knowing how long it takes to develop a vaccine and knowing how hard it is to get people to volunteer, I decided to volunteer as a healthy volunteer for an Ebola vaccine study here in Melbourne. So at the same time, I bought shares in the company because I figured that might be a good move too. <laughs> shares went up. That was good. And I'm hoping I'm now probably immune to Ebola, just in case I want to go to Sierra Leone or the Democratic But when I did that, part of the process was consent. And it was, take this away, tell your family and friends about it. So when I went home, we had a, a big barbecue with somebody's lunch. At somebody's um, birthday lunch, and I told my mum and dad, and I told my kids in the car on the way up, so at the time they were about 17 and 15, and they thought that was heroic, which is exactly what my son said, mum, that's really heroic. And I said, yeah, I think it is, because if some, who's going to do it? If I don't do it, who's going to do it? And then when we got to the lunch, I told my parents, and there was silence, absolute <laughs> silence. And then my sister-in-law, who is one of my best friends, she burst into tears and she took me into the kitchen and she said, why? Why are you doing this? You don't have to do this. Why is it you? You're a mother. You have responsibilities. You own a company. What if it goes wrong? And I said, but if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And she said, but not you. Somebody else should do it. <laughs> but that's my point. Who should do it? We should do it. And as Christine said at the start, when you raised your hand and you took a drug or you used a medical device or you were diagnosed using some new technology, all of that needed to be tested, not only on animal studies or doing, doing it in animals first, but it needs to be tested on healthy volunteers. So many of you in the room might be volunteers that, are, that have a, an illness or a condition or a disorder. Um, I'm lucky. I'm not sick. But I have a role to play. I have a role to play, not just in the drug development industry, which has employed me for 25 years, but I have a role to play as a mother and as a wife and as a daughter and as a partner in this community and part of our community is what I can do for you too. But it was an important revelation to me that the response I got from my kids was, wow, that's really cool, Mum, and that's really fantastic because they are global citizens. They're part of a new generation that I really admire and love in the way that they think about the world as a global space. My background, I came through as a clinician in allied health and was involved in research right from my honours here. And I can honestly say I don't think there's any scientists in this country or any other country that develops or, or discovers anything just for use in that community. I think all scientists, all clinicians, all technology developers want to see their, their discoveries and their developments have a global impact, not just a local impact. We often don't think beyond our own community, but in the space of medical research, and particularly um, clinical research, we have to think globally, not locally. We can't afford to be Australian. We need to be part of the global community here. I'm very proud of that. And at the same time I was doing that, a very close friend of mine had stage four melanoma. And she's also worked in the biotechnology industry all of her life. And the very first thing she did when she called me, she said, I want you to be my clinical power of attorney because I want you to help me make the clinical decisions that will support my care. And at that time we decided the doctor that we chose needed to be a trialist. And that was actually our core decision. We said we don't necessarily want the best, we don't want the most admissive, you know, the, the easiest to get in touch with. We wanted the doctor who was most involved in clinical trials, particularly around melanoma. We knew that there were new drugs coming down the tube. We wanted to make sure she could access that. We also knew that there were lots of other radiation clinical trials going on and different approaches to radiation. 
So she accessed all of those things in the last two years of her care and she lived her life very, very well and very healthy until the last sort of few weeks. But again, the same thing when we went to her family and said, we're going to get her into a clinical trial and we're going to do this with these doctors. Her parents, who are Greek and don't speak very good English, were appalled and said, no, we're not allowing that. And I said, well, actually, I'm medical power of attorney and she is in a state where she can accept responsibility for this. But what we face in this sector is significant opposition to what it means to be part of a trial. And unfortunately, this is a space in which there are prejudice and there are preconceived ideas around what's safe and what's not, what's consent and what's not, what's available and what's not. And too many people I've spoken to get to a point in their illness or disorder where they feel like they've run out of options. But being part of a trial gives hope, and it gives hope to so many people. But it also gives opportunity to the nurses, the doctors, and the allied health professionals that are learning and also developing in this space. So what we give our healthcare community is a space to learn. It also means that discoveries that come out of Australian medical research institutes and universities and hospitals have an extra breath of life, that those discoveries can be developed on our doorstep. And it means for us as patients and consumers, and frankly everyone here in this room is a patient, it means we can access those drugs and we can access early innovative medicines earlier than when they appear on the market. Of course there are risks, but in life there are risks, aren't there? It's always going to be like that. So my role as an ambassador I think is a really important one. Where I work now is in social media. And I think this is the greatest thing that I can bring to this campaign is, as Christine said, there's a hashtag, and with a hashtag comes a conversation. My children are now 19 and 17, and they're very social media savvy, like most of the young people that you know are. They're more open to these conversations. They have a global mindset where many of us don't. They're more likely to contribute to sustainability in, and causes, but they're more interested in quality of life rather than just living <coughs> life. So my role in this is to talk to as many people as possible, and I love the device of a cup. A cup of coffee and a 10-minute conversation is all we need to share our experience with wellness and illness, but our experience with hope and understanding. So what we need is an informed community that has the tools, as Christine said. If they have the tools and they're empowered with education, they can make informed decisions. And the decision that I made was I want to be part of a global community in which everyone has equal access to good quality vaccines. It's a small thing for me but I think it's a really big thing for the community. So I encourage you to take the cup to have a conversation. If you're on social media, share it. Tag a politician. <laughs> but also remember, as a community, this is not just medical researchers in public institutions. It's the scientists and researchers within our pharmaceutical industry which are equally as important. The service providers that work in this space, the lawyers the accountants, the people that work in regulatory affairs and government are critical to be part of this conversation and we're equals in this. And you and me, as patients, we're equals too. Thanks.
trips me up. Um, it's been developed collaboratively between ACTA and the CTIQ. So participating in clinical trials as a volunteer is just one way um, of being involved in research, but um, Simone here to talk to us about other ways that people can get involved. And I will put your slides up. by giving your time to participate in clinical trials, by filling out questionnaires, by attending medical clinics, and also by partnering with the clinical research community. And it's, it's, it's that partnership that I'm going to talk to a little bit further today and about furthering that partnership. Um, we know that if we can improve the, the relationship and the partnership between patients and the clinical research community, we can truly make future clinical trials truly patient-centric and make sure that the questions we're asking are the questions that you want answered and the clinical trials better fit your needs. And ACT understands the importance of that. And it's for that reason that we've been developing an online toolkit that can help establish better relationships. We all know that patients are at the centre of the healthcare system. And at ACTA, we're putting the focus on trying to embed consumers in every aspect of, of clinical trials. Of clinical trials, and I understand that while the word consumer is not everybody's favourite word, um, we also we also note that it's important to be using the same terminology. So we've adopted consumer because it's the NHMRC um, definition, and they just, they define consumers as being, uh, as you can see there, so they define consumers as being patients, but also potential patients, carers, and and people who use healthcare services. And because today we're talking about the consumer involvement and engagement toolkit, we might as well get all the definitions out of the way. So when we say consumer involvement, we're referring to an active partnership between consumers and clinical research, the clinical research community, um, including but not, not, not limited to clinical trial participation. And when we talk about in, uh, consumer engagement, we're talking about sharing information and knowledge about clinical trials with the consumer community. So now we've got that out of the way, why do we think we need a toolkit? The consumer involvement uh, in clinical research, particularly clinical trials, is, is really increasing in Australia. And there's good reason for that. We know that active partnership between researchers and, and consumers can help to identify the healthcare needs, can help to prioritise design and, and design research projects and really can help researchers to understand how they can change the health services to suit patients and the public better. Consumers are absolutely vital to shaping and advancing clinical trials by lending their personal experience. We also know that clinical trials that have the highest levels of consumer participation tend to achieve their recruitment levels much faster. And recently, I guess, uh, granting bodies and, and also journals are starting to change their policies so that consumer involvement is becoming quite vital to getting the funding to do the clinical trials, but also to publishing the results at the other end. So we know that the consumer involvement and participation with clinical research is important, but what do we need to do about it? So firstly, ACTA formed a reference group, an entire reference group, looking at how to strengthen consumer involvement and engagement in all aspects of clinical trials. And then we asked the question. So we went to the literature and we did lots of surveys of consumers and clinical researchers to try and work out what we were already doing in Australia, what the barriers and enablers were to, to increasing and strengthening those relationships in future, and also what were the best practices around the world. What we, what we found was that overwhelmingly the attitude towards consumer involvement in research was overwhelmingly positive, both from the perspective of the consumers but also from clinical researchers. We found that although the investigator-led clinical research sector is already involved in consumers and and, uh, and, and values consumer involvement, what was needed was far more support to actually increase and develop and strengthen those partnerships. Uh, 
So I guess this is a little bit of a digression, but one of the things we also found was that uh, we need to say thank you to consumers and that we need to celebrate those, those cases where consumer involvement in research is already going really well. So this year, as part of the International Clinical Trials Day, we launched, a, and thanks to Christine participating in that, we launched a, a new um, award that was for consumer involvement. And the winner this year for the inaugural, inaugural award was the Torpedo 3060 trial, which was a partnership between the Impact Research Group and Melinda <coughs> Cruz, who, was at, who is a, a consumer and mother of three preterm babies. And through that partnership, they managed to get a waiver of consent. Unfortunately, I'd love to tell you really lots of detail about the trial, but just briefly, they managed to get a waiver of consent so that preterm babies could be could participate on the research and, and benefit from the research no matter when they were born, even if that was outside the normal research hours. And so that wasn't possible previously. And then through that research, they managed to answer the question of what's the ideal levels of oxygen for a preterm baby? So really important answers that wouldn't have happened without that consumer involvement. And so we know that there, there are great things happening out there, but we also know that more was needed to make sure that these kinds of important relationships continue. So through ongoing consultation, we identified that more support was needed along the lines of producing good practice guidelines, ensuring there was better public awareness of how important consumer involvement in clinical trials was. And so what we came up with was an online consumer involvement and engagement toolkit. This is really the go-to place for all things consumer involvement. Basically, it was initially conceptualised as a, as a map that, that um, looks at all the existing tools and guidance documents along the entire spectrum of clinical research, uh, taking things from international best practice, creating new documents uh, from, from Australia that fit our purposes. And we've, as, as uh, Christine mentioned, we've collaborated with CTIQ on this project, which has been a really powerful uh, partnership to ensure that we make sure this toolkit's useful for as many people as possible right across the sector. And the toolkit looks at um, facilitating that active, collaborative consumer involvement and engagement along the entire life cycle of the clinical trial. And it's primarily focused for researchers and for research organisations to help them grow that relationship with consumers. But down the track, we hope we'll have more consumer-facing tools on there as well. And we imagine that this will continue to grow and, and become... Um, and add more tools to it as we go. So this is what it looked like initially when we were mapping it out. But as we go, we're trying to make it as simple and accessible as possible. These are actual screenshots, so it, it's under development at the moment and will definitely be launched later this year. So ultimately, just to wrap up, um, we hope that by connecting consumers and with clinical trials at all stages of the process, we hope to see that the, the development of a stronger and more efficient healthcare system and, and we all need to contribute back to it to ensure that, 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 that that's a possibility in the future. Um, I want to say thank you <laughs> to all of you, but also all the people who are, who are helping to make this toolkit possible. And I think there are people in this room who are actually contributing to the development of that toolkit. Um, but a big thank you also, to, especially to Nicholas Straiton, who's the project officer, whose passion is driving this project. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, great. If I could have our panellists um, come to the front and take a seat and get ready for our thank you session now. And, um, and I will pass over to Dr. Tanu and he'll be facilitating this, this part in the morning. Um, so thank you to Tan and thank you to all our speakers. So I'll just quickly introduce us. We've got Kerry Bloomfield here. Um, Tim Green from CSL, we've got Harun Ahmedi on the end from Roche, Dr Louise Murdoch from Emeritus Research and Richard Varelli um, from Royal Melbourne Hospital and I'll pass over to you now, Tim. I have a very easy job. We've had a, a fantastic panel here really sharing their experience in terms of their insights and obviously from uh, the, the perspective of why clinical trial presentation is important and, and you know, hearing that broader impact and we often, often don't share that with our, um, I guess, our patients, our participants and so on and so forth. So we've got about 30 minutes in terms of hearing um, some of the insights and um, I'm sure there'll be opportunity to um, ask questions. But first of all, thank you to the panel and also thank you to all the participants. 
Um, so I'll start with Carrie and let you introduce um, yourself and I guess in terms of your insights in terms of why uh, patient or you know the clinical participation is important in, in this space. Okay, thanks, Tam, and hi, everyone. So, Carrie Bloomfield, I head up the clinical research team at GSK Australia. So, GSK is based just up the road. Um, I've worked in clinical trials pretty much my whole career. I started uh, working in London, actually, in a phase one unit, um, and I ran healthy volunteer studies. So, I used to pop downstairs and get myself involved in clinical trials from time to time. Um, so, clinical trials, I guess, is part of my blood from a, from a career perspective. Oh, the importance of patients in clinical trials. It's what I love about this White White Coats Foundation um, and this campaign in particular. As a pharmaceutical company, as part of the industry, we don't have a lot of interaction with patients. We talk the word patients every day. It's patients are part of our core values. We have photos of patients um, who give them permission to have their photos on the walls at the office. So patients are a big deal for us, but we never have an opportunity to interact directly because of privacy reasons. Um, my team are trying to deliver clinical trials every day. Uh, my team are employed specifically to try and develop the medicines that GSK scientists have developed. And we can't do that without patients. Um, just yesterday, a weekly metrics, I was talking to my team about some new studies that are coming through. Um, and how quickly we get those started up. And I said to them, you know, these assets could be, could be really important to patients. We need to get them out to patients as soon as we can. So this campaign allows us to get a little bit closer to patients and show our appreciation because patients are critical to us. I have um, a bit like Christine, whoever will listen, I have a mantra or I, I think I like to share my vision for the community in and around clinical trials and as a patient myself is when you get a diagnosis whether it's a mild condition or whether it's something much more serious, I want to be in front of my doctor and say, okay, thanks for my diagnosis. Let's talk about the, the prognosis in the future. What are the current therapies? What are we going to talk about in terms of treatment? But importantly, what clinical trials can I get involved in? Either because that might actually be the best option for me, that new technology, that innovation that's coming through um, could be actually the best option for me. There is a risk benefit there around a clinical trial. You don't know whether it's going to be successful or not. But I want to be involved in clinical trials. I guess I'm a, would be an educated patient because I know about clinical trials, but that to me is really important. Um, my mum has dementia. She still remembers us and knows who we are. Um, but there are no clinical trials for my mum in dementia. And I bloody wish there were, because I would really like her to be involved in a clinical trial now while she's able to still can consent. So, I don't know, I could talk about the importance of patients in clinical trials. Every time I'm passionate about something, I tear up. It's really embarrassing. Um, my kids always looking at me going, Mum, stop tearing up about everything. But... I'm really passionate about the importance of patients. I really want to say thank you. Um, people should not be told if you think No, no, I'm just saying. It's raw and it's real, so that's what we want to thank you. It's um, embarrassing, right? No. <laughs> that was actually the theme for the session. We're just popping up. It was about being more relaxed and real. Thank you. I'm not sure I can follow that with tears, but I'll certainly try and give you my story. So, so my name is Tim Green. I am a scientist, uh, a biologist by training, and I've spent my whole career uh, working on the, the discovery and development of new medicines. And, 30 years of that in the UK, working in the pharma industry there, and the last 10 and a half years here working down the road at CSL and the research facility there. So I have spent a large part of my career wearing a white coat, never found one that fit. I <laughs> <laughs> comments like, oh, I look like an ice cream salesman. <laughs> one of my colleagues, one of my team is here today, and she will attest that I don't wear a white coat. A white coat very often these days. And when I do, it's to go in the lab and show people around. And I 
increasingly I never know where anything is or how anything works, <laughs> and they all just laugh at me. But um, so look, I have had a long journey, and uh, I just wanted to share with you some of my sort of things and observations along the way. So, in 30 years, I've, 40 years now, I've worked on lots of projects, um, many, many projects, some successful, some not so, and that's the nature of research. And um, you know, where I am now, I head a department that's called Research and Clinical Bioanalytics. So we're part of global research, and um, we occupy the top floor of the new Nancy Miller's building, for those of you who've seen it, which is at Bio 21. So we share space with Melbourne University. We rent the top three floors of that fantastic new facility, and it's a great place to work. Um, but, you know, one of the things that is just really plain but probably gets a bad press is that drug discovery and development is very expensive and a very timely process. So you can look online yourself, but if you look at the latest figures, to develop a drug from the bench through to registration through to launch, now the latest estimates are 2.6 billion US dollars. And if you add on the costs for research and development after registration, it's probably more like 3 million billion, sorry, US dollars, so whatever that is in Aussie dollar terms, so 4.4 billion Aussie dollars to develop a new drug. And as I said, lots of drugs don't make it. And um, obviously you want to try and weed out the ones that aren't going to make it before they get into clinical trials, and obviously a lot of work goes into that, which is where my department uh, come in, because what we do is develop the tests, the bioassays, that allow us to make those decisions. So we want to measure whether the drug is safe. So obviously there's a progression through test tubes into animal models, we want to make sure it's safe. We want to make sure it gets to the right place and stays there long enough, and we want to make sure it gets to where it needs to get to and it's inhibiting whatever it is, so the new target mechanism or the, the, the new uh, approach, the new target we're trying to treat that has some consequence on the particular disease we're trying to treat. Um, just going back to that sort of failure rate, not going to go too much into it, but it's just a reality of, of, of how we work. I think that number of um, a lot of projects failing is across the whole pharmaceutical business. You know, if you look at CSL, how CSL works, up to now at least, you know, our failure rate's been fairly low, and that's because of the nature of the, the drugs and medicines that we've brought forward. So our uh, what we've done is develop medicines based on the knowledge that people who are deficient in particular proteins have a particular disease related to that. And what we're very good at is actually then collecting blood and plasma. We collect millions of litres of, of plasma from around the world and we fractionate that plasma and we can separate out those proteins. So things like when people are deficient in coagulation factors to get haemophilia. So we can purify those coagulation factors and give them back to people with haemophilia. People who are deficient in their immune system are deficient in antibodies. We can purify out the antibodies and give them back a, a mixture of antibodies that sort of basically compensates for the lack of uh, antibodies. And so on and so forth. There's a, a number of diseases, rare diseases, where people are deficient in particular proteins, and that's what CSL built its business on up to now. And we'll continue to do so. But we are looking at the next generation of products and, and medicines that are going to come through. We have a fantastic research facility now within the CSL organization. It's global. We have research sites in Europe, in Germany, in Switzerland, and now also in the US. And um, we have some fantastic scientists. And um, so we're looking to develop biotechnologies, so the next generation drugs. So we call them recombinants, they're based on molecular biology, so recombinant versions of the proteins that we purify out from plasma, but also novel drugs, targeting novel mechanisms that we believe would have an impact on our particular disease process. So coming back to what my department do um, and, and why you guys are really so important is we need, we need samples, we need tissues, we need blood. And... Um, because we, to set these assays up, we have to have that material. And so, um, over the even just over the past four or five years, just looking at the samples we've collected within research at CSL down the road, it's something like now, I think 10,000 samples, and samples would be blood or tissue, uh, from over 1,000 
patients. And these are patients not necessarily in a clinical trial where CSL is testing a drug. These are just patients who are coming in to their clinics who are prepared to give samples for research, which is like really, really important. And so with those samples, and there we samples from diseases where CSL is interested in developing new therapies, and for example, things like asthma or psoriasis or other inflammatory skin conditions, but things like um, cardiovascular disease now or metabolic diseases like diabetes, hereditary angioedema, a whole list of, of uh, new diseases. So we collect tissues from um, and sample blood samples from hospitals around the precinct, including St Vincent's. Um, a bit further afield from like Sydney and from um, and from Adelaide and, and globally as well. So they're a fantastic resource, and in those samples we can look at the expression of the thing we're trying to target. We can look at like a like a gene snapshot that tells us that, that in that patient which genes are being expressed that allows us to derive like a signature of the genes of disease and we can look there to see whether that's something we can use to either identify patients or use as a biomarker and say well when we treat these samples does that signature change in the right way does it return to normal so of course it's important that we have normal tissues as well and that's a really big part of what we collect as well we collect normal tissues but Volunteers aren't always that keen to give us bits of their tissue, but on occasions they do. But they are pretty willing to give us blood. And we have um, a fantastic arrangement that was set up um, actually with Mary and with Christine probably uh, how many years ago now? Six? Yeah. Um, where um, we have volunteers who come into skin and cancer and um, donate a small volume of their blood, 40 mils of blood. Um, and that, we go and pick that up, and then we do our thing. So we might just use the blood as it is, or we may separate out the blood cells and do things with the blood cells. Um, I think we've collected something like, a thousand, I'm looking at Alison McCullough, it's probably like a thousand donors worth of that, just in the last few years, a thousand, or over a thousand, I think. We also get samples from Red Cross, and I think we've probably had 500 samples from same sort of volume from donors that go into the Red Cross. So they're a fantastic um, resource as well because it allows us to do the comparison between what's going on in the disease samples with what's going on in the normal samples and start to build our assays, which we then can make those decisions early on whether we should progress with a project. And if we do progress with the project and it goes into the clinical studies, so my department do those, either the same tests or versions of those tests in those clinical studies. So we couldn't do that without you. So it's such an important um, resource, and, and so we're really, really thankful for, for all of you guys for, um, for allowing us those tissues to do what we do. That's great. Thank you. 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 My, my story um, in coming into clinical research started about 15 years ago now, and um, Christine has a photo there, the first one, please, if you can. Yes. Oh. One prior to that. Oh, sorry. That's okay. It's a new desk. That one there. Um, that picture taken there, that, that's you know, me on, on the right-hand side there. Um, you haven't changed at all <laughs> in 15 years, which is pleasing. Um, and the, the event was uh, 24th of January 2004, my, my friend Mark's wedding day. Um, and he was my, my, my best friend at the time. Um, and back then I was working in retail management, so not, not working at all in clinical research. Um, and can still recall the day very well. It was, it was a, a fun day, lot, lot, lots of happy memories. Um, and two years after that day, Mark was diagnosed with a brain tumour, um, the most severe type there is, the overblastoma multiform. Um, which, was, which was a tough time. Um, and one year after that, he passed away, um, 26 years of age, um, which, which, as you can imagine, you know, um, was, was not easy. Uh, and at that time, before he passed away, um, his brother and I started looking into different options for him and, and his treatment, including clinical trials. And I had no knowledge or, at, at all of clinical trials prior to that point and actually found it quite interesting and quite intriguing. And aside from wanting to help Mark and give him a chance, um, which unfortunately wasn't possible for him. Um, it, it, it opened my eyes to this, this world of clinical trials that, that I, had, I had no idea actually existed. 
Um, and shortly after he passed away, which was the 1st of May 2007, um, I was lying on the bed one day with, with, with the computer and typed into Google clinical trial jobs uh, and was, was amazed at, at all the, 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 uh, the roles out there and, and this, this entire industry, in fact, that, that again, I had no idea existed despite doing a science degree for, for three years prior to that. Um, and so I sent off five letters, just speculative, hopeful letters to five different companies who work within Melbourne, within clinical research. And of those five companies, two didn't reply. Um, two replied and said thanks, but no thanks. And one replied and said, come in for a chat. Um, and I had that chat. Um, and luckily enough for me, I was offered a role as a research assistant. Um, that was three months after Mark had passed away, so August 20, 2007. And I worked there for seven and a half years and then moved across to the Royal Melbourne Hospital um, in 2015 um, in my current role. Um, and so much of, much of my story, I guess, is, is Mark's legacy and, and, and trying to do something for him and, and um, making sure his life is not a waste. And so much of my, my motivation is, is, is around that. But it goes beyond that now because unlike Kerry, I, I, I do see the patients um, within my role. Um, I'm, I'm quite fortunate, I guess, that my role is just down the hallway from our clinical trial centre. And I, I see them walking in the door and, and their husbands and, and their wives um, and, and they have children and, and they're often, you know, grandparents. Um, and it, it's, it's, it, it, it makes it all feel a lot more real actually seeing these people, these faces, these stories, um, these individuals. Um, and that, that also serves as a motivation for me to do things as well as I can um, to serve them and, and, and my role is to, is to serve the public um, and much of my role without going into details um, is, is around what occurs before a trial gets opened within a hospital and starts enrolling patients it's all the stuff behind the scenes all, all, the, all, the, all the boring paperwork and contracts and ethics and government applications and things like that that have to occur before that first patient walks in the door. Um, so me doing, me doing my role the best that I can um, helps people and, and helps families, um, which, is, which is certainly motivating for me. Um, the next one, please. Oops. Oops. That one? Yep, please. That's, that's my desk. Um, and the reason I've taken a photo of my desk is you'll see on, on the wall there, on, on the pin board, if your eyes are me good, a message. <laughs> The best interest of the patient is the only interest to be considered. And I look at that message every day, and it, it, it's right alongside where I sit, and it, it's a constant reminder of, of, of why I do what I do and, and what's important. And the nature of my work is that we get bogged down in an awful lot of detail. It's incredibly um, email-heavy, meeting-heavy, Excel spreadsheet-heavy, and none of those things particularly matter, really. What, what matters is, is giving patients a chance to be involved in uh, enrolled in these trials, um, particularly as I said before, by Christine, patients who have no other option or, or very few options. Um, and for many patients, the, the clinical trial is their best chance of receiving care. Um, we often talk about the paradigm that the clinical trials aren't an adjunct to patient care, clinical trials are patient care. Um, so it's something we live and breathe and, and believe in tremendously, um, and again, serves as, as a huge motivation for myself and, and also our team. Um, and the last picture before I, before I pass with that one on is something we did recently. So we, we had the clinical trial centre's second birthday um, in, in, in June of this year, just last month. And incredibly, across um, two years since we opened the centre, there's been more than 6,000 patient visits across a whole array of different therapeutic areas from, from epilepsy to dementia, MS, diabetes, heart disease, asthma, the list goes on. Um, and I, 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 I spoke with my team about how we could um, celebrate the occasion and, and um, we, we had a nice morning, or afternoon tea rather and, and um, welcomed the research nurses to be involved in that and, and um, had a lovely day. But we also wanted to do something for the patients to recognise them um, because without the patients there is no clinical trial centre. Um, and so this was only a very small gesture but, 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 but a gesture none, 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 nonetheless I guess. Um, to give cookies um, to each of the patients who came through the centre for a four-week period to also be part of our, our birthday celebration. So um, that's really, I guess, for me. But um, it just nice, I guess, to celebrate the patients and, and include them as part of the occasion. Thank you.
thank you very much for inviting me along to speak today. I did bring some notes because I think that will work out better for me. <laughs> um, I'm a GP by training and after I was lucky enough to have a few too many children, I got out of general practice and started working in clinical trials roughly 10 years ago. I do my best to thank our participants as often as possible and I am thrilled to be here today to thank everyone who participates in clinical trials. As we know, clinical trials help answer questions. They help improve our ability to prevent, detect, diagnose and treat illnesses. Without participants, we would not be able to develop medications as safely as we can. I'm often asked why do people sign up for clinical trials? It's a good question. I've heard many reasons, all of them are important and all result in the patients giving their time and making a commitment to what is sometimes a complicated process. Personal benefit is one reason, but certainly not the commonest or the most significant. Clinical trials allow patients to access medication, which may otherwise be unavailable to that person. They may have tried other options unsuccessfully, and a trial offers them the hope of a new medication that may help them with their condition. I've seen many patients personally benefit from participations in trials, and it certainly makes, helps make their efforts feel, feel more worthwhile when they do benefit, but they don't always. We've had a ballet dancer who'd run out of options with treatment of her rheumatoid arthritis, and she was able to dance again thanks to involvement in a clinical trial. We've had a woman who was able to get back to running her own business thanks to involvement in a trial. Then there are the simple things so many of us take for granted, like the patient who enjoyed the, the simple joy of being able to sit on a picnic rug with his family. I think patients are absolutely extraordinary in their perseverance, despite in some cases no obvious benefit. They'll persist through a placebo-controlled period, tolerating frequent visits, blood tests and other investigations, whilst gaining no relief themselves. These patients tirelessly persevere, hoping that their efforts will help find a better treatment for their condition or for others. Patients with chronic pain have participated in early phase trials, which give no offer of medication after the trial, purely in the hope that it will help others in the future. Many of our patients benefit um, sorry, participate because they recognise that they benefit from some treatment trialled by others and they express the desire to help others in the future and give back. Some are there for academic interest, healthy volunteers who commit to vaccine trials to help in the development of a new vaccine. They often enjoy the process and learn how a vaccine is tested in the community. Every participant has some altruistic motivation. They must to attend clinic visits, tolerate multiple examinations and investigations, complete questionnaires and symptom diaries. It all requires time, effort, patience and acceptance of potential risks. To be interested and involved, patients have to see the big picture and have concern for others in the community. I often hear people say, well, if it helps someone else. We have a patient who had twin sisters who benefited from trials to treat their severe lung condition. And our patient was eager to help others as her sisters had been helped. We had patients who travelled for hours to attend visits, even one who flies from interstate to participate. We have frequent flyers who participated in several trials over the years and keep coming back for more. They all express a wish to give back to the community in some way. And I personally benefit in many ways, thanks to participants I've met over the last 10 years. There's the joy of seeing patients benefit themselves, the hope that, that through this process more people will benefit and seeing the best part of people through their selfless commitment to helping others. I'm extremely fortunate to have the privilege of working with people willing to volunteer in clinical trials and I really want to give a heartfelt thanks to all the volunteers involved in clinical trials. Without you, the world would be a poorer place. Thank you for your commitment and dedication to our community. Well, last but not least, um, well, firstly, Christine, congratulations. This is really a noble and innovative campaign, and Roshi is certainly uh, thrilled to be behind it. So uh, congratulations. We look forward to, um, to seeing this evolve as we go. Um, so um, I've been, my name's Helen Alnelli. I'm the country head for uh, Roche Australia, and I'm based in Sydney. I have a very large team um, and a smaller team in Melbourne. Uh, and together we do about 120 trials and enrol about 5,000 patients. We have about 5,000 patients active at the moment. Um, one of my key roles, I've been in research now for 27 years, um, and I've seen amazing things happen. 
Uh, and there's certain patients alive today because participants in trials have participated in key pivotal studies that have given us the clinical evidence for clinicians to make key uh, medical decisions. Um, so one of my key roles uh, at Roche is to make sure that any innovation that happens at our Genentech and Roche labs comes to Australia. And actually, we've been really successful. I'm really proud of my team. Uh, we've got one of the second fastest startup times in the world, which means that uh, we can get our trials faster to patients. Um, and also that um, it means that we have these excellent research facilities that are able to do um, research here. So that's why the White's Code Translation is fantastic, because that supports the need of clinical trial awareness uh, for patients to participate in these great um, trials. Um, I'm also a volunteer, Tim, so you might be pleased to know that um, I've donated my stem cells or my cord blood. I was very fortunate to have the gift to three children. And during that time, uh, I did donate my, my cells. And if they were not matched, I uh, donated them to research uh, to a public bank. And um, I, I, I felt what it was like to be vulnerable as a patient, to understand the risks and benefits, to undergo through a consent process, um, to not know where my data is going, to not know where my bloods are going, not where my cells are going. So I completely walk in the shoes of patients. I know exactly what it's like. So that's why I challenge my team all the time uh, to think about the patient first because um, it can be, as Christine um, and Carrie has said, it could be, and your example too, it could be uh, someone in your family. And certainly within my team back in Sydney, I have a number of people going through a health journey and we're working through different clinical trials for them. So even when you work in the industry, it's very difficult to, to get access um, to trials. And so that education piece is, is absolutely critical. And I think the White Coats um, can certainly help with that. So um, I wanted to finish by just really acknowledging this, this really extraordinary work that patients do without you. You may think it's, it's a one-time example. Um, the information and data we collect forms a, a broader group of information that forms evidence for us to present to regulators um, to, to move our treatments um, through the discovery process, to have them registered and to be provided not only to Australians uh, but to communities around the world. So um, I just simply wanted to finish with um, thanking all our patient participants. Without you, we simply would not have the clinical evidence we need um, for, to progress our treatments. to all the rest of the panel for, for your insights and certainly that, um, that personal stories and I've, I've worked with Perry and Richard for a number of years but certainly when, when you're on the ground and you just don't have time for ourselves, you know, sort of sharing that, that sort of um, story so, so thank you for that as well. Um, so we are finishing on time um, so just a for questions or are we going to finish and... I just want to make sure that, you know, again, participation, yeah. making sure our, 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 um, you know, our, our audience, you know, if there's anyone wanting to, to make a comment or, you know, wanting to raise anything, uh, and here's the chance. Um, but if not, up. Oh, <laughs> I am so pleased to be invited here today because it uh, answers all my questions. I'm a patient. Uh, I'm on research, I'm well-being, uh, live life full, uh, I have liver cancer, but it's under control. So what I heard here today, it's amazing, I appreciate that, because uh, one of the things Christine and I would talk about was how we started, and I already started, but I'm aiming to that, you go to the GP with a cancer diagnosis what the GP should do. She started like this, I'm sorry you have cancer or whatever. There are your options. Chemo, radiotherapy, and then trials. It should be included to every day, you know what I mean, whoever. So we need to educate only, not only the public, but uh, 
the medical uh, society as well. Thank you for inviting me here today. And, and, and what we just definitely there just in terms of that that partnership between um, patients, uh, the GP hospital, but also uh, pharmaceutical companies that will have to work, you know, uh, together in this space and and to to carry points, you know. I mean, certainly, I, I want to make sure that when I get to the stage where I need something, there should be something there, and not just for me, but it's for everyone else, you know. Um, so thank you again, and, and as a token of appreciation, um, there's a little gift for all of our panellists, so just make sure you pick up that gift. And I'll hand the microphone back to Christine. Thank you. Um, yeah, so thank you very much to everyone again for coming today. I really hope that you enjoyed the um, session and all the different insights that were offered here today and stories from our panellists. Um, we're actually going to be moving our awareness initiative over to the public hospital now. We're going to be setting up a, um, a stand in the foyer. We think that the um, hospital setting is really appropriate for engaging a conversation around clinical trials because health is, you know, part of the mindset of people in the hospital, the patients and the visiting hospital community, or at least thinking about trying to get better. So um, we're going to be um, talking about clinical trials in the foyer. So if anyone wants to um, talk to Fiona and I about um, the White Coats Foundation and we don't get time to do it now, we'll be over there if you want to chase us up. And, of course, you can always email us and contact us um, after today as well. But thank you so much to all our wonderful speakers and panelists for giving up our time, to the patients and everyone here that attended today. Thank you.